and the Sideshow Network. And I am traveling back from Santa Barbara uh, with a very, very funny and smart and quickly rising in the ranks uh, comedian and writer, uh, the very brilliant Camilla Cleese. And uh, thanks for being on Overview with me. Thank you. That was the best intro ever. (laughs) Can you always introduce me from now on? From here on in, that's it. And it's locked in stone. We can't really... Don't touch the script now. We got it. Set. And uh, we were just doing a set list up in Santa Barbara, uh, thanks to uh, Troy Conrad and Kimmy D. And I've talked about it in other shows. Uh, Set list is an improvised stand-up show that you get thrown your topics on a projection screen and you have to just wing it and improvise with them. And Camilla, this is her first time up here at the Telegraph in Santa Barbara doing the show, and just killed it. And so I want to talk to you about your impressions, because I know I have mine, about the value of the show, set list, and what it does for a comedian, what part of your mind it activates, and how incredibly valuable that is later when you use it for everything else. Right. So what are your impressions coming out from that killer killer and you, you just switched clubs it was so good you switch clubs and you're, you're playing with the biggest baddest players from here on in because that was just so. pure was obliteration now tell me what you had had to say about it um it's it's really fun to do especially you know we all have our material that we do every night and sure sometimes you're working on new material but this makes you think really far outside of the box and i think because of that sort of activates the super creative part of your brain that sometimes can be dormant uh, when you're talking about everyday stuff because it makes you kind of reach and like I think a lot of it comes down to making connections between things like a lot of comedy can uh, but you know you're having to reach extra far for connections uh when you're getting topics that are as obscure and, you know, not every day that they throw at you. Um, no, these are anything but everyday suggestions, and the crowd is watching you duke it out with odd, blended word things right. that are supposed to be a little more of a challenge for you to justify. But you're so good at very seriously poker straight giving justification to just either, you know, abhorrent or absurd things, which is so funny. Uh, oh, it's the best, though. It's it's so much fun, and thank you. I mean, I really enjoy it because it's just nice to do something different, and you also, it's refreshing because I feel like the audience starts out on your side because they know that you're making it up, so they're a lot more uh, lenient, perhaps, or maybe lenient's the wrong word, but they're more generous, certainly, I think, with their reaction than they are if they think that that was a prepared set. Um, but it's... The other thing I love about it, it forces you to stay in the moment, which can be a trap, I think, for any of us doing stand-up comedy, where, like, the second that you start to go and 
think, oh, I could have done that better. Why didn't that get the laugh that it should have gotten? Oh, yeah. Like, the second that you do that, if you're on stage, you're you're screwed. I think we've all been there. Where, or even if you have that moment, like, I did this the other night. I was having a really good set, and I was like, wow, this is going really well in my head. And literally, it just started to fall apart from that point on out because I'd taken myself out of the moment. But with setless, you really don't have the chance. I mean, right. you if can't. you do do that, you're screwed, and you don't really have the time or, or the chance to because you have to... At no point do you think you have the luxury of it. No, absolutely not. Because um, you're, you're so focused on these crazy, obscure things and trying to ground them in reality somehow um which is fun well uh, it's as if you're born to it so and you are well, you. you are born to it you come from a lineage of genius uh you are the brilliant john cleese's daughter from monty python and that's an interesting place from which to stand into the light in, in a field that's similar in the fact that you're going for laughter in a slightly different way. Right. I mean, I think you're standing in the light with a really big shadow cast over you, but um, I think in a lot of ways it pushes me to be that much better because I feel like there is a certain expectation. Um, it doesn't always make it easier, but... And I think sometimes it makes it harder because... You know, people might expect from you, like what? I feel like sometimes people expect me to be as funny as my dad, and I, I don't. I mean, I'm still pretty new to this career. Um, you're hilarious, and you're, and you're really your comedy's really smart and and uh, an arch at times. Very did <laughs> some gallows humor in there. That's. And, you know, your dad had a dash of that, too. Sometimes just out of nowhere, someone will blow up or get shot, you know. Or you're cleaning a carpet with a cat. As you should. (laughs) And that's kind of, you know, some morbid stuff played for fun. So I can see where it's a great, that's a funny influence. Um, Absolutely. We we definitely both have a... a, uh, affection for the dark <laughs> the dark side of comedy um, and for kind of silly fun random absurd things uh, and I'm, I mean I know he heavily influenced me because I started out working with him and writing with tell him. me about that it was great because we've we've always thought quite similarly and um, you know I think just growing up around him like there was we always joke that we'd sharpen our teeth on each other because we'd like to tease each other and talk a little shit here and there and um and he's a very logical and rational minded person like his incredible cognitive abilities and reasoning skills and uh actually went to school to be a lawyer and I I like to think at least I got some of that but it it makes working with him great because we finish each other's sentences. We kind of tend to arrive at the same conclusions about things. Or um, if I'm having, if we're having trouble solving something or, or trying to find a joke that works, even if 
if I suggest a bad idea, it'll prompt the right idea in his head or vice versa. And yeah, right. so it feels very natural and easy. And, and, you know, I think too, like, obviously he takes the lead role in, in things, especially initially, but, um, that makes it sometimes easier to work in a partnership if that's already determined by seniority and, you know, who's responsible for the other person being alive. <laughs> um, it, it can make it easier. I mean, I know for some people it wouldn't work out, but we work very quickly and, and easily. And I've been able so lucky to have had that opportunity because what, what better a person to have is like your personal tutor, you a know, mentor than John Cleese. Yeah. I think that has to be mostly whatever shadow that cast, you have to look back on the go. Oh, that was pretty much a stroke of luck. No matter what, there's a fine thing that happened and yeah. to inherit his DNA and his brilliance, but not his looks, <laughs> right? But not his looks. No, he's a good-looking man. He's just very manly-looking. He has an underbite, so I'm glad I didn't get that. Yeah, well, it fits It fits him. Yeah. Perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. No, I I don't think I would. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's he's the best. I'm, I'm very lucky to have him as my dad. Um... And, and he, you as his daughter, that he can so easily communicate with doing what he loves. Not every dad gets that uh, arrangement where you, the, two, the two of you can talk in shorthand and have fun with it, you know. Sometimes it's such a rebellion. You chose well not to rebel against this part. <laughs> well, I did at first. I mean, it, I came into comedy pretty late, um, I think I'd exhausted my my other options in a lot of ways, but I'm so glad that I did. I think I was just intimidated at first about doing stand-up or doing comedy in general because I started out as a writer and actor before I was doing stand-up um, because, because it was my dad's thing, and everyone knows it's my dad's thing. And it's like, how do you live up to that? And, you know, you get a certain amount of attention if you try to follow in his footsteps, but how do you fill his shoes? How do you fill shoes, yeah. Uh, you know, and especially as, as a newer stand-up, like, you're still kind of under a microscope, which doesn't make it easier because, you know, when you're learning and you're new, you should be able to make mistakes without being publicly criticized uh, for them, I think. Uh, and sometimes what? that doesn't happened <laughs> what, what has happened instead is you have just accelerated the program to get so good that they don't have the option to complain about it there's a few people that might disagree with that but I like to think so yeah well tonight was a great piece of proof for that you hate killing with uh, some pretty tough topics there yeah uh, well <laughs> I think anyone would say arguing for pro-incest is not always the easiest. Right. <laughs> but it's fun. It makes you think for it, for sure. Paints you into a corner a little bit there. It's easy. Right. It just watches to see what you do to chop your way out. Right. Right. Um, he would be proud if he saw tonight, because we also played a ton of word games and uh, 
did crossword puzzles together my whole life and I think that that really helped as far as my writing skills and my wordplay abilities go like I'm good with anagrams or acronyms or things of that nature yeah you shredded it tonight not as good as him though he's incredible he does those cryptic crosswords in the New York Times in like 10 minutes uh, and I have some that I've, <laughs> I've been working on for months um, that I'll probably never finish but I'll never give up just because I'm very competitive with him which is a waste of time but I am anyway <laughs> uh, but how long have you been doing stand up? uh Gosh, it's hard to say exactly, because I had to take a break at one point, but uh, about three, three and a half years, I think, now? Well, it's ridiculous how good you are for three and a half years, and so I don't think you have anything to worry about that you started late, because I don't think you started late. You just didn't call it that when you were doing it before, but you were in comedy for a long time. Um, one way or another, you're around it, you're in it somehow. Yeah, you know, wreaking havoc on the universe. Uh, <laughs> in a funny way. Yeah, I thought so. I don't know if everyone agreed, but... Um, no, but I'm actually... In a, in a lot of ways, I'm glad that I came to stand up a little bit later because I had so many crazy experiences and and lived all of these crazy places and had these weird, random careers, and it certainly gave me a different perspective on things that I would have had had I tried to do stand-up at 20 years old or something out of university. Um, and, like, I I think when I see these kids starting out at, you know, 19 or 20 years old, part of me is jealous, and I'm like, that's amazing. I wish that, that I'd started that young, but then part of me is like, what would I have talked about? I mean, <laughs> that, like... I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what was going on most of the time. I would have been drunk a lot of the time, probably, which is not very cute. Um, especially not on stage. Don't flash your lights at me. I signal. Hey, we're in the middle of an interview. Sorry, that's no, right. I mean, that guy. Oh, you know, <laughs> but, what are you no, giving us the light for? Why are we doing? Yeah, we're not ready to get on. No. I didn't even cut him off. I just changed lanes in front of him. Thanks, buddy, for putting your brakes on and blinding me. Jerk. Californians. Uh, <laughs> entitled knucklehead. Um, so, when you were like a kid, when did it dawn on you that you could be funny? Because it had to have hit you in childhood. I didn't think I was especially funny because when you're growing up with you know my dad and a couple of my other relatives worked in the industry in comedy and ever, so everyone was pretty funny so like you don't stand out by any means I just sort of was fit in with everyone and I guess what I mean is when did did it hit you where there's a pivotal moment when you got an adult to laugh when you got dad to laugh let's say that's pretty you get John Cleese to laugh, that's kind of a pivotal moment. Well, with my dad, I never really felt like it, because I always kind of made him laugh. I think in high school, because I, I was a huge nerd, dork, had no friends in junior high, and got bullied and really was miserable. I just moved over from London to Chicago and had a really hard time with the transition. 
um, because it was just so different. And at that age, and I was really young for my grade, so I just felt like such an outsider. And I remember really wanting to be popular, um, which, you know, later on I figured out is a total waste of time. But when I got to high school... Comedy is a shortcut to that, by the way. Right. Like, I, I went to a different high school in a different town, so I kind of had the chance to, like, start over. And I realized quite quickly that if I made people laugh, I people would like me. And I kind of became, like, a class clown. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble, <laughs> probably because of that, but I certainly had a lot of friends suddenly uh, by kind of being a little bit rebellious and playing practical jokes and and just making people laugh in conversation. So I sort of took that role on. um, What kind of practical jokes? Oh. (laughs) Uh, Gosh. I mean, in more recent years or high school years? High school, uh, we had a PA system on my best friend's car. So... The rival high school, which was also in our town, we used to drive to keg parties that they were throwing <laughs> and pull up outside, and I would get on the PA system and be like, this is the Lake Forest Police Department. Please dump out all your beer, <laughs> every alcoholic beverage, and we won't arrest you. And you would see kids, like, running out of the house, and they're <laughs> trying to pour out all their booze. And then we'd be like, 60, 59. 58 and just count all the way down and then as soon as it seemed like they were done we would just drive away and let them try and figure out what happened stuff like that that's good well, did you hear that folks that's a good trick uh, and what's a more recent now that you're out of school for uh, what's now what's the way you uh, pull a practical joke on someone what's the new format um, in more recent years well, at one point, I was living in a house in Santa Monica and had a bunch of roommates, one of whom flew back and forth from Vegas every week. Um, and so <laughs> I kept a rather large stash of lube in my house, uh, like a, a lot of different varieties, because he'd be packed up and ready to go and leave his hand luggage by the front door for usually long enough, you know, for me to take out a pair of shoes and put a few bottles of lube in his carry-on um, because you know who doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> TSA. Um, you're not allowed liquids on the flight. So you can imagine... Take it out explaining the lube. He would go through security and, and they'd inevitably pull his bag out. I only did it to him once, because after once, he was pretty guarded with his luggage, but... Yeah, um, headlocked then, yeah. He, you know, as they were unzipping his bag and pulling out... And I didn't just get lube. Like, I got every flavor and color and homosexual-looking bottle that I could possibly find. Well, there you go. And uh, they'd pull out of... They pulled out a variety of them, and, and he texted me, You bitch. Uh, I... I just wish I could have been there to see it. It would have been a lot of fun. Um, but I didn't. Or I've even been known... <laughs> I spent almost an hour hiding in the box that our laundry machine came... Our washing machine came in at my old house, uh, waiting for my dad to come home. I got my other roommate, 
Like, I just sat in it by the front door, and as she was trying to unlock the door, I stood up and went, wah! <laughs> she just about had a heart attack. But then she pointed out I might actually give my dad a heart attack, and I was like, yeah, that's probably not smart. Uh, but I was very determined. Spent a lot of time in that box, just waiting. <laughs> Dedication to the joke, to yeah. the craft. Or immaturity, however you want to look at it. But uh, it was fun. Gosh, we, I mean, Dad and I used to mess with each other all the time. Would he pull jokes on you? Um, yeah, he's, he has done. I mean, especially when I was younger. Like, he used to always sneak behind trees and jump out. Like, even when I was at the age where that probably wasn't a funny joke. It was, <laughs> you know, because, like, when you're four years old, it's just scary. Yeah, and you don't really yeah. understand why it's funny. But I remember once... We were staying at some resort kind of in the woods. It was, I think it was the Ventura Inn up in Big, Big Sur. Yeah. And you had to walk through this, like, wooded area to get to where the restaurant was. And he must have gone out there, like, an hour before I was going and hidden in the woods in the dark. And uh, I was walking along the path with my sister, and he came flying out of the bushes. And she was... Ten- 13 years older than me and we were both hysterical like not laughing crying because it was so scary like you know it's the kind of woods that they could have bears in and he does sort of look like a bear he's a big big fella yeah he's not a small man but a lot of stuff like that uh, certainly Um, and and a lot of stuff like before I even ever got the joke like I think until I was about seven or eight I believed I was purchased at Harrods the department store Um, and when I was bad like he would pull out they had this really big Harrods bag in the front hall closet and he would pull it out and wave it at me and say I'm taking you back we're gonna find one that looks like you but doesn't talk and like at that age you know he now is like well I thought you knew I was kidding I was like how could I know you were kidding when you're a kid like to get a joke it it requires having a base of knowledge you know well that's a good point don't don't pull out the hippest (laughs) yeah certain levels of uh, more advanced comedy you hold off on the kids give them some simpler stuff to break them into the idea well they take things very literally um, because they don't know to otherwise perfect example I was teaching ski school at one point and I was helping this kid take his ski boots off and put his regular shoes back on and and uh, he'd put his shoes on the wrong feet and I looked down at him and said oh honey you put your shoes on the wrong feet and he looked at me and like a little bit grumpy and was like no these are my feet <laughs> which uh, said, that was the setup. You had to wait all that time to get that, yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, it's that really literal, like, they just take things to mean what they mean. At one point, my That's family, the word play you're talking about. Uh, well, a little different, I think. Well, words, well, give me an example of word play. Oh, like, we would do anagrams and stuff like that, um... And to this day, I can see really well, like, especially if it's up to seven letters, like in Scrabble, if there's a seven-letter word, I can pick it out, even if the letters are jumbled. 
Um, but, you know, he would love stuff like, and this I pointed out to him more recently, I can't remember any, like, any specific examples off the top of my head from when I was a kid, but like, uh, you know, mother-in-law is an anagram of woman Hitler, which I think is hilarious. there's there's a few like that that always struck me as funny um and we would do like cryptic kind of crosswords and play boggle he's never beaten me at scrabble which infuriates him and it's mostly out of luck on my behalf the one time he was kicking my ass like so badly we were in new zealand on tour and we were in this rickety rv that was driving us down this sorry excuse for a road Um, and (laughs) it was quite bumpy, like we were almost like we were off-roading. The suspension system wasn't very effective and he was kicking my ass and we were almost at the end of the game and we hit a bump and the board went flying, um, and all the letters scattered everywhere. So I didn't lose (laughs) (laughs) and it drives him crazy, but I think it's because he tends to try and pick the best word rather than paying attention to what double and triple letter score or word score it lands on, and that's really what it comes down to. Uh, You and my mom would have hit it off. She was a big Scrabble player. I dominate words with friends, like the WWF champion, or at least I like to think so. I play a lot of the comics. It's fun. Words with friends? Yeah. What's that? You don't know words with friends? Uh, I'm a Luddite about some things. Tell me about it. It's basically Scrabble, um, but you play it on your phone or iPad, and so you take your turn, and then you hit send, and it sends to one of your friends. Uh, you know, anyone in your contact list or Facebook friends. But you start a game with them, and then they go, and they send it back to you. So it's like an ongoing game of Scrabble with whoever. Does that make sense? Um, it's, yeah, it's the new, it's 21st century version of it. Yeah. Yeah. The only real difference is, like, there's no one there yelling at you to take your turn. Uh, just, <laughs> you can take as much time as you want. As long um, as the screen stays on. Yeah, and people can cheat, I mean, which is annoying. I may have had an ex-boyfriend that suddenly got very, very good at Scrabble after, or not Scrabble, Words with Friends after having lost, like, 40 consecutive games. He Um, went away into the mountains to train. Yeah, or just downloaded the Words with Friends cheating app. (laughs) You know. (laughs) But I still enjoy that game. It's fun. How do you write? Um, how don't I write? I... Usually, I write in the car a lot. Like, I'll just do voice memos and stuff if I think of stuff. Um, And once I think of a premise, I tend to sort of obsess over it. So, although sometimes I sit down and just try and push through it, especially if I have, like, writer's block, if I don't have anything I'm really working on, I'll sit down and force myself to write. Once I have, like, one idea on a topic, I usually start obsessing over that topic until it other things come to light you know and then try them 
at open mics and see what works and what doesn't and throw stuff out and reword stuff. I like it though because it's kind of like a big puzzle, like a there's a sort of mathematical element to it, certainly a rhythmic one and trying to find the clearest and most concise way to set up a joke or you know the premise without revealing too much information is it's kind of a fun little puzzle because uh, it's a fine line between those two things and then again once you have a series of funny things to say trying to figure out how to put them together so that it logically makes the most sense and gets you the maximum number of laughs I like all of that kind of problem solving I guess um so you use, whether you're calling it improv, you're using improv kind of mindsets to crank you out lots of new things. There's a formula, but there's a lot of improv. Yeah, and and at open mics and stuff, like I, I find that sometimes I write better sort of thinking out loud when I'm on stage, so if I have a funny premise, I'll just go and, like, talk things through. Um, but sometimes I go in with more a more formed idea of what I'm going to say when I get up there, like bullet points sort of in my head. And so you record pretty much every set? I record every set, yeah, especially the open mics and stuff where I'm doing new material so I can listen to what works and what doesn't work and what needs to a little tweaking and um, what needs to be thrown out and never done again. Although... If I think it's funny, I'm probably going to keep doing it, which isn't always the best thing. Uh, are there bits that you are rebelliously uh, loyal to that are not producing results with the crowd? And can you in your head say why you hang on to it? Is it an act of faith? Because every comic has some variation of a pet bit that doesn't always produce what you want but you love it and you're hoping for the day when it will kill again maybe the one time it killed you're looking for that moment again or whatever uh, or to refine the bit so that if it didn't kill tonight I love what I'm trying to inherently say and I'll I'll strive to work towards getting the punchline added to it because I think its message is worth this fight and this amount of time I I mean most things if they don't work a certain number of times, I'm going to throw them out. I have some bits that I know are very dark and edgy, but I think... And some nights they'll hit really well, and other nights they just won't at all, and I'll totally lose the audience because of it, but I kind of don't care because I feel like if I do lose the audience, then they weren't worth keeping, which is a horrible outlook uh. to have. But like the, the stuff that I do, it's not really offensive if you think about it objectively because maybe it contains buzzwords that tend to like get people tense about stuff uh, but it's not really like I'm making fun of those subjects it's more that I'm making fun of the way that I think about those subjects or putting them into very like silly ways um, like I don't know but some people get like I have I have a joke where I just say the word racist and you, it's like you can see people tense up on hearing that word. Um, and it's funny, it's usually the white people more than any other group, I think, that that 
start to worry if you go down that road. And I don't really, I don't do any racist material. I'm not a racist person, but like anything that could be interpreted as such can really make the audience nervous. Right. Uh, sometimes, like in any situation, someone will hear one word in the sentence you made and just get angry at the word and ditch the context. Right. A crowd can certainly do that, and a drunk crowd can really, really, really do it and fill in the blanks with their brand new sentence around that one word. Right. Oh, absolutely. And anything that makes fun of a group that people don't want to hear. And it's not even making fun of the group. Like, I I had actually another comic tell me that he thought I shouldn't do this bit anymore because it was a terrible bit and it, you know, people were taking it the wrong way. And the bit was basically saying, like, um, what did I say? Oh, like, I've never understood why sports teams pick such stupid wussy mascots to represent them, you know, like the Oregon Ducks or the Utah Jazz or the Navy Seals. Um, like, Seals, really, you know, these are the toughest, they're the toughest men on earth, and they're being represented by an animal that's best known for getting clubbed. And, like, this comic was saying I was making fun of the Navy Seals, and, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm making fun of my own stupidity because gen genuinely the first time I heard of the Navy SEALs and what they were I thought that that was their mascot um, and you know so it's just interesting what people will pick out and, right. and cling on to like I, I have immense respect for the Navy SEALs they really are like the most incredible humans in their athletic abilities and their skills it's a, and they're serving the country and protecting us all. That's amazing. I would never offend them, but, like, people are can pick up on those things and just say, oh, she's making fun of the neighbor. Yeah, but then there's free speech, and it's just a bit. And it, it's not doing the person who gave you that complaint any favors for them to look that stupid. I mean... How about the Navy SEALs can take it? They can take the joke. Oh, yeah, that time, they don't need you get drunk and defend them like a moron somewhere. Right. Especially yeah. when you're not really making fun of them. You're, you're, it's like a comedy roast. If, if we're not allowed to poke some fun because of that level of sensitivity over something that's about... I mean, I understand if you don't make fun of the... The, the baby or the puppy or something like that because right. it's defenseless but the Navy SEALs aren't defenseless well and I'm not really making fun of them I'm making fun of like the fact that I actually believed that was their mascot so it's almost self-deprecating more than it is I think about the Navy SEALs you know <laughs> but who uh, you know what are you going to do there's always they're always going to be offended by something like the short men I was telling you about earlier. Yeah. <laughs> They're not happy. Um, but, you know, anyone, any of my friends with a sense of humor, and I have a lot of short guy friends, will come up to me after a show and they're like, that's my favorite bit. It's so funny. Uh, what, now, you, you want to go into a little detail about this other situation? Sure. It's, you were telling me before, it's insane. It, it's pretty hilarious. Uh, so, what's the backstory? So I, I do this little bit in my stand-up, which I guess I should say some of it to kind of explain. It's a very silly bit of material, but um, I should also preface that I do like probably 
usually when I do this bit of material, it comes right after about four minutes where I make fun of myself for being a very tall woman and the ups and downs of that. Uh, but I, I did this little bit about how men under five foot eight are responsible for most of the misery in the world. And it's, it's very silly. And obviously I don't really believe it. It is stand up comedy, but I go on to list, like, look at all the dictators, you know, Napoleon, Hitler, Genghis Khan, Stalin, Tom Cruise, Justin Bieber, Oscar Pistorius, never killed anyone until he was under five foot eight. Babies cause lots of misery. Tiny little terrorists. You know, so it's very, like, silly. And I'm... It's a, a dash of the absurdism. Yeah. And I'm mixed with truth. So you... <laughs> that's the side-by-side of it, right? Is... An absurd extrapolation on something that's inherently true. Right. And the whole time I'm kind of winking at the audience because I know there's going to be short men out there that are, you know, like there's people that are looking at me like, you bitch. But it's teasing them, you know? Uh, But any normal guy should have a normal sense of humor about this. Well, most of, at least my friends, like I've had a lot of short guy friends see that bit and they're like, we love that. That's hilarious. Uh, and they like the attention, I think, being on them. But then there's this group online which is dedicated to the support of short men, where uh, I think short people in general, like, coming together and, and standing up against what they call heightism. And so they kind of started this online hate campaign against me on their website because uh, they queued up the video just from where I do this little bit uh, and left out any of the stuff where I make fun of myself for being a tall woman and they ran with it and then they started trolling all of my videos every, everything of mine online attacking me on Twitter, Facebook anywhere they possibly could accusing me of heightism and bigotry and getting rather personal and nasty and calling me ugly and saying I look like a man and you know, that no one would ever love me and all of that charming kind of stuff, uh, which I kind of think makes it the whole thing more... But it takes a big man to put it that way. <laughs> yeah, figuratively. Jeez. <laughs> um, you know, maybe we've had it wrong. and We were thinking they these people were called the minute men. <laughs> maybe they were the minute men. <laughs> That's good. I should say that. I mean, it definitely... To me, I'd actually kind of stopped doing that bit of material, but when they started making a fuss out of it, I was like, oh, bring it, let's go, and, you know, definitely... If we're going joke for joke. Right. I'm... That's only going to make me more inclined to do it, and they were trying to threaten to sue me. I was like, on the grounds of what? Like... Just because you're closer to the ground doesn't mean you are standing on it. Yeah, be a big boy. Don't... (laughs) Anyway... Um, yeah, they've sort of died down now, uh, which hopefully will remain that way. But it meant I had to pull a lot of my videos and stuff down just because it, it got a little out of hand. Um, so you're saying their days are short here. <laughs> yeah, their, their days are short and angry. <laughs> um, I don't know. People are sensitive. I think, you know, we all deal... The reason that we do comedy is to deal with pain a lot of times and to make ourselves laugh about things that 
may have hurt us at one point because it makes it easier to cope with. So I think it's just kind of silly to get so upset about things that it's one person's opinion. You know, it's not like they they acted like I was trying to do some kind of political well, rally and yeah. like form a hate group against them, which is not even. Been doing a couple of jokes, and it's like nothing shows one's weakness and insecurity more than an overreacting attack over something small. Right. It's like, it's tactically the single worst thing you could have possibly done. You should have laughed it off and shrugged it off, which would actually look like you're completely secure in your position. But what they did instead was make it look like they're terrified of absolute collapse and loss. Right. Which is, guys, just future reference. Don't do that anymore. Act like it's nothing, like it's no big deal. But when you respond, you start to get that, you know, like Bill O'Reilly will attack something and then ten people pile on him and it looks horrible, you know. It's just so not worth it. But they don't get it, do they? No, and I mean, the funny part that really sort of made it clear to me how much they didn't get like this is comedy this is not me like preaching to people trying to get them to think that short guys are evil like it so there was this bit at the end of that bit of material where I would say so I have a height limit like when I'm dating I have a rule you have to be at least 5 foot 10 to ride this ride unless you're super rich and terminally ill Preferably with something fast acting. You know, it was just like these silly lines. And one of the things that they were attacking me about in the comments were saying, you fucking gold digger. I was like, wait, you think I'm being serious? Like, that that's what I'm really, like, looking for those kind of people? Like, is it not clear that that is such... I'm not being serious when I say that? Like, it's so crazy to me. Um, yeah, it's it's like I think Sarah Silverman has experienced crowds that don't get she's being arch and ironic. Right. Uh, sometimes, but I think it's some of the most advanced and wonderful comedy out. The wonderful, I think it's enduring all time human nature, explaining Mark Twain level stuff. You know, right. no, and I think you're in your way in your own separate voice also reaching a level of that arch understanding and it's really good stuff you know because <laughs> okay. it has a moral compass to it it's just shown in reverse right I, well I hope so and I hope that most people get that but if there are any short men who are terminally ill out there listening please call me or contact me through Twitter because uh, <laughs> I mean seriously it's just funny to me that people like you can get so bent out of shape about that kind of stuff. It's crazy. Anyway, um, what gigs do you have coming up? Um, that's a good question. I don't. I'm. What do I have in the next couple of weeks? Um, off the top of my head, I don't know because I haven't really looked. But right, we're in the car. I can tell you the first weekend of April, which I believe is like around April 4th-ish, um, I'm opening for Jimmy Schubert at Flappers. That'll Great. be a really fun weekend. 
He's great if you don't know Jimmy. I know Shuby very well. I know Shuby, of course. Uh, he's been around forever and he's a real force to be reckoned with. Super funny guy, just came in top 10 on last comic standing. Uh, and a great friend. That'll be a fun weekend. What else do I have? I'm at the Laughing Laughing Skull Festival at the end of March in Atlanta. Oh, I love the Laughing Skull. I've never done it before, but I'm wonderful. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I've heard great things about it. I've Marshall's a good guy. Um, I know Marshall, too. Um, but really looking forward to that. And anything else will be on my Twitter or Facebook, which are both Camilla Lee's uh, real original, I know. <laughs> C-A-M-I-L-L-A-C-L-E-S-E. It's good you grabbed it when you did. So how does it go again? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. What? How, how do I spell my name? Yeah, just give the, the, the whole thing. C-A-M-I-L-L-A-C-L-E-E-S-E. So it's at Camilla Cleese on Twitter, Camilla Cleese on Facebook. Um, yeah, please follow me. I try and be funny and nice-ish. <laughs> well, I'm a fan, and uh, I watched you enter the ranks of some of the best set list players tonight with the, the way you broke it down and did your analysis and justification of these absurd premises. That was like the top top shelf stuff. And it was so good to see you there at that club. So I'll be seeing you over now at uh, Nerd Melt. And guys, keep your eyes out for Camilla Cleese. She is uh, super, super talented and just beginning and it's ridiculous how good she is for this amount of time watch to see what happens next it's worth it and thank you for listening to overview on the sideshow network and on itunes thank you camilla please thank you for the kind words it means a lot coming from a guru like mr overton here he's amazing Uh, lucky to have him as a mentor Oh, you you got your mentor, and he's one of mine. And uh, guys, thanks. We'll talk again soon. Bye.